I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm thrilled to be joined by Sanjana Sathian, the author of the new novel, Gold Diggers. Stay with us. So I've really enjoyed conversations on the podcast with guests who are sharing their stories and just simply doing cool and vanguard things, representing our community, blazing trails, developing new relationships. No matter where you are or who you are, the coming of age story is one that many can relate to. It often captures a spirit of a generation while perhaps meaning something different to each individual. South Asian culture has many rich tales that blend so many balancing themes, past versus future, straddling two ideas or two traditions or religions or geographies. For author and writer Sanjana Satyan, capturing the second generation experience has come in the form of essays and commentary that speak to the vibrancy and fragility of our community, as well as the nuances of representation that are not always shared out loud. Now, her debut novel called Gold Diggers just released on April 6th and is being adapted for TV by Mindy Kaling's Kaling International. It shares a playful and original coming-of-age story about the South Asian American experience spanning two continents and two coasts and four different time periods, tackling the concept of Indian America and achieving the American dream. I was so grateful to share a conversation with her as we talked about these concepts particularly with the backdrop of history, nostalgia, and the transformative effect that it had on her, coupled with the mindset required to write this book. How did you sort of transport yourself into that mindset, embarking on this journey through the book? I mean, were were there experiences from your childhood or uh, thinking about studying in in rainy days um, in India? How how were you able to sort of put yourself into that mindset and and really um, embark on this journey? Yeah. Um, well, I'll set it up for people who haven't read the book. So, so Gold Diggers follows, uh, mostly it takes place half in 2006 suburban Georgia, as you know, and half in 2016 Silicon Valley. And it follows Indian American second generation teenagers um, who are growing up in the suburbs of Atlanta the way I did. And so that really is drawn on my experience. Um, it's narrated by a 15-year-old uh, guy named Neil Narayan, um, who is really kind of suffering under his uh, family's expectations for his high achievement. Um, but as you say, it does weave in these sections in the 1980s um, in Bombay and uh, in 1850s Gold Rush, California. So the stuff that is kind of comes from my experience is suburban Georgia, you know, Asian bubble, everyone's competitive, everyone's striving to get into college. And then picking up 10 years later where Neil, that same sort of slowly underachieving teenager is uh, this like often kind of still bumbling PhD student in Berkeley. Um, So that came really easily, but I wanted to fill out the story and have other elements of the Indian American experience in there. Um, And so I turned to um, my aunt and uncle a lot. Um, My aunt who um, is uh, from Maharashtra she gave me a lot of the insight into Anjali, who's um, uh, the parent of one of the uh, Indian American teenagers, um, her experience growing up in the 1980s. There's also a whole section set at IIT Bombay, 
um, which I got from my uncle who uh, was there in the 1980s. And it was really fun to have an excuse to talk to him for like three right. hours. Um, yeah. And, and learned that for him, college was, uh, you know, I think of IIT Bombay as this pressure cooker for scientists, but he was like, we really just cared about music. Like we were doing, you know, cross-dressing shows at this like mood indigo festival and being able to weave that in was a lot of fun. What made you want to characterize um, the immigrant or even post-immigrant experience in a coming of age story? I mean, um, did you feel sort of inspiration from other coming of age stories or kind of the playful or fantasy elements of those? Um, was there a, is there a gap for the Indian American story um, when it comes to coming of age in America? Yeah, a gap is a really good way to put it. Um, you know, when you say you want to be a writer of fiction, a novelist, people always say you have to write the book that you want to read. Um, and I think I was writing the book that I needed to read. Um, there is one other kind of coming of age story, Desi Diaspora, that really spoke to me, um, The Buddha of Suburbia by Hanif Qureshi. Um, and that's came out in 1990. That's a UK story. It's sort of rude and irreverent and really funny, um, but I hadn't seen something like that in America. Um, and uh, it just felt like something I needed to sort of stake my claim on uh, in a way. That's what you do as a fiction writer. You, you try to give shape to an experience that um, has not been articulated um, fully before. Yeah, and I mean, um, I wonder if because it hasn't been fully articulated, and you mentioned it earlier that it's it's one version of that experience. Um, did you find yourself kind of thinking as you're writing um, that how how will you be able to capture this? Um, it, are there pieces that are missing? I mean, it's so hard to include every bit of your own details and the things you want to hearken upon uh, in in memory with the narration of, I would imagine, um, a pretty amazing story um, fictionalized. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I had a sort of magical realist device that let me enter this world, um, as you referenced. So Neil, the narrator, um, really kind of underachieving, ends up uh, discovering that his neighbor, Anita, who is the daughter of Anjali, that girl in Bother, um, she, he finds out that they have been stealing gold from other Indian Americans and transmuting it into this magical elixir, uh, which sort of helps them take in the ambitions and energies of the gold's original owners. And that is a like a playful and surprising way into this world that, that surprised me when I came up with it. And so because that was there, it was like a it was like a, a vase that everything could fit into. It gave shape. So I didn't have to say, quote unquote, everything, I could just follow that device and say, okay, what does this lead to? Um, what happens when you steal other people's ambition? That's probably going to be sort of poisonous and just watch it snowball from there. Right. Um, you write in the book that uh, old, this line really caught me, old recipes were never quite the same on this side of the world. And, you know, for those who are, have had that experience where They've either had you know parents who've emigrated here, or they've spent time in India or, or in the South Asian um, you know subcontinent and back. Is there a way to come close? Do some of the recipes that now exist here, um, you know, do they do they reach some kind of um, near experience? 
Um, is it important for them to be the same in the first place? Is it, it is, is it inevitable for us to try and, and likely fail? Uh, or are we now coming up with even new recipes that, that sort of are um, upstanding on their own? Yeah. Well, I don't think I've ever been one for nostalgia for the motherland for its own sake. Um, I did move to India as an adult. I lived in Bombay for two years. I've lived there intermittently. So I have a connection to India and it has mattered a lot to me. Um, but I don't think that uh, the sort of nostalgia of the first generation that you see a lot in like early diasporic uh, art um, that like that wasn't my aesthetic. Um, I am much more interested in figuring out what happens now that we're here because I grew up here. Um, and so as you're saying, there are new recipes um, and you see it in everywhere from like food, like the Indian American food scene is booming. And so much of my novel is about food in America. Right. Um, but then also like art aesthetics, what's happening on television, what's happening with film. Um, we were developing a new public and cultural sensibility. And I think that's really exciting. Well, you say it right, because I'm having some chai right now that's got some soy in it. And my grandfather would like perish if he thought that anything other than buffalo milk was being used for chai and, and you know, it'd be sacrilegious for sure. But you're right that, you know, the evolution of this kind of brown experience, um, do you find that as you talk more and more about uh, and, and your voice lends more and more importance to narrating the brown experience, and particularly as it, whether it stays brown or becomes more beige, um, you know, do you find that some of these stories are evolving? And is there a risk of drifting away from the nostalgia of the subcontinent in any way? Well, I don't have any concern about losing the nostalgia of the subcontinent, but I think a lot of that is manufactured. Um, one of the first conversations I had when I was a journalist um, in, in India, I was interviewing TM Krishna, the very famous Carnatic musician. Um, and he was like, I hate talking to people in the diaspora because you're all so much more conservative than everyone in India. You're living in a 1970s version of India. And I, I hadn't thought about that, but I thought it was really interesting. Like, we have been relating to what Salman Rushdie called the India of the mind for generations. And so whatever we're doing here, like Indian America is a place, South Asian America is a place. Um, in the same way, like, like American Judaism is an identity that is distinct from European Judaism, that is distinct from Israeli identity. I think that Indian American identity has its own sort of, uh, its own thing, thingness. There's yeah. an, there is something there yeah. um, that is becoming. Well, and you write about that in, you know, there's a line in the book that showcases this uh, sort of aha moment where uh, Anita's character sort of wins a local pageant, I think. And, um, you know, there's a line that says she's convinced the judges now that there is such a place as Indian America. It is, it, is it important to convince ourselves that that place exists? Is that part of the kind of mission, if you will? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that was a thing that I had to do in writing the book at all was realize that, you know, I grew up in the suburbs, which I thought were total no places like cookie cutter homes. The subdivision I grew up in was called Deerfield East 2, like not even Deerfield East, which is right. a silly two. enough name right. too, <laughs> like in Roman numerals on the book sign. Yeah. Um, but when I was in graduate school and writing about this, you know, I had friends who were writing these like 
romantic scenes of like off-kilter barns in Western Kentucky or picking salmon berries in Alaska. And I was like, I'm going to write the suburbs. That's so gross. Um, But when I wrote the suburbs, I realized like threading salons and like ethnic malls, like Kumon math centers, like these are some of the places that, that made me. And now you walk around and you see, you know, like Brooklyn and Queens and like the whole Bay area, like these are rich, thriving versions of Indian America. It's not just the suburbs. There's so much more um, uh, to our place today. And even more variety, right? I mean, the, the strip mall in Cerritos, California, and the Indian grocery store down the street here in the Bay Area are probably very different than the, the southern experience uh, or the rural experience, even forget about the suburb, suburban Indian experience. And are those snapshots, you know, evolving and changing and Um, What are some of your reflections on how to even capture the diversity of that experience within the Indian American kind of circle? Yeah, well, one thing that has been really important to me has been thinking about history. Um, You know, at the start of our conversation, we were just talking about the age of the South Asian diaspora. Um, I didn't know very much about pre-1965 history until I lived in the Bay Area. And if you haven't taken the Radical South Asian History walking tour in Berkeley, yeah. Berkeley, right. Amazing, amazing tour where, you know, um, Anirvan uh, and Bernali, these fantastic uh, community historians, have chronicled, you know, the rise of the Gather Party, um, who were anti-colonial revolutionaries plotting against the British crown in 1914 in Berkeley and San Francisco, Um, you know, in Stockton, the Punjabi Mexican community, um, understanding like the history of Sikh farmers coming through California. Um, There's an amazing book I recommend to everyone called Bengali Harlem and the Lost Histories of South Asian America by Vivek Bald. Um, It has really mattered to me to understand the textures of where we come from, to understand that our diaspora has been, you know, caste diverse, it has been uh, more working. Religiously diverse. Religiously diverse. It's not as homogenous historically as it has come to seem today. And so I think if you look at history, you're like, oh, wow, I can be more than that. And, And the book does this with gold rush history, kind of looking into an Indian American or an Indian man arriving in California in the gold rush. And you, I think, salt and pepper this through the book and and put that historical perspective in there, whether it's through Swami Vivekananda or Bhagat Singh Pind and, um, you know, understanding at least that that's um, that importance is there. And and is that importance kind of the, um, you know, end outcome that you're hoping for for the reader as well, whether they're South Asian or, or not? Yeah, I mean, I think disaggregating our experience is really important. Understanding textures to our experience is really important. Like the book takes a sort of lampooning, like lightly comic approach to making fun of this quote unquote model minority stereotype. But it also like that model minority stereotype can become deadly serious, right? It, it can result in like horrors within the community Um, really bad for mental health. And now we're seeing how it affects Asian American Pacific Islanders um, across the U.S., how this misunderstanding of who our community is can result in a lot of a lot of violence. And so I think I hope for more textured identity because I think it can free us in public. I wonder, I mean, how can the storytelling that you do and others, um, you know, the even 
TV version of, of this forthcoming now. Um, can storytelling be sort of a vehicle to push away from that model uh, minority narrative and and kind of, you know, at some point we have to greet that very longitudinal heavy lifting um, of deeper alignment with communities of color, particularly the Latinx and African or Black community um, and Native American communities. I mean, how can storytelling sort of like take that torch forward? Yeah, well, I want to be so careful here because a lot of what I think like the result of my work could be um, for me, like totally selfishly for me, is it has changed my understanding of who this community can be. So it has changed my politics. It has allowed me to see um, the systems that have shaped us and understand that we are a result of historical and like contingent forces. That said, artists don't always make for good activists. Um, you know, yeah. like my terrain is the inner life. And I hope that people read this book. I also hope they go read those histories I talked about. I hope they listen to some of the awesome people who've been on your podcast who are talking about anti-racism from a South Asian perspective, who can help us put these ideas into better practice. Cause that's not what I do, but I really want those people to sort of help me carry it forward. I think for someone who's, um, you know, the audience member, if you will, I think the nice part about that, and I appreciate that for sure, is that when you get inspired with these little nuggets that are thrown in there, it may actually be the kernel to that activism. It may actually be the inspiration for that activism. And you're right, there are those in the policy or the activism space who then take maybe those storytelling pieces and now walk forward with that from a, a different, hopefully more inspired lens um, in that way. And, you know, one thing as a creator, as you said, right? I mean, you're you're living through a different lens and, and you're you now have this playful novel under your belt and and one that um is taking your background. Is it hard to create um to the cravings and an appetite of uh, a large American audience um without kind of compromising the authenticity of both the immigrant experience of your parents, your own experience that you know, really is is not necessarily, un, uh, you know, completely unrelatable, but relates best to people like you and me. Um, how do you sort of balance that together? Yeah, I mean, the white gaze is so tricky. Um, yeah. It's just everywhere and it can flatten you. Um, but I mean, writing happens in this like deeply private space. And uh, I think by writing for myself first, um, I hope I was able to create something that brown people can enter and say, this doesn't feel like it's pandering. Um, but I also like, I'm more in conversation with an American tradition of literature than any Indian tradition. And so um, I think that like, it's been really gratifying to see non-Desi American readers from immigrant and non-immigrant backgrounds connect. Like a reviewer saw a Catcher in the Rye in there, which made me so happy. Like there's Robert Penn Warren, All the King's Men. There's The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. Like, I'm communing with, and Philip Roth is a huge person I'm in, like in communication with. And so I, I hope that that helps this book speak to um, like a universal uh, American experience. Right. You wrote, um, I saw an, an opinion piece that I really loved about the Indian matchmaker um, show. And it sort of, the idea was that you were, I think getting across was that it revealed sort of conversations that take place behind closed doors. Um, you know, 
this book and, you know, your writing in general, do you feel like it's helping to sort of spark and, and in some ways, you know, help this, these conversations bubble up a little bit more? Um, and what other conversations in, in, you know, in your mind's eye need to be drawn out even further? Yeah. Um, well, I, speaking of Philip Roth, I think about this essay he wrote about how um, worrying about how his community looked to the uh, the the goyish public was giving into anti-Semitism um, because it flattened Jewish identity. Um, and he talked a lot about how uh, a writer's job is not to do good PR for the community. Mm. Um, and I maybe even wonder if sometimes a writer's job is to do a little bit of bad PR. Um, like Indian matchmaking didn't make like the we of our community yeah. look that good all the time. Um, uh, writers like Yashika Dutt, who um, wrote a fantastic uh, book called Coming Out as Dalit, which just won the Sahithya Academy Award. Um, she wrote a really convincing critique of how Indian matchmaking uh, revealed the so-called invisibility of caste for people for, from Savarna caste backgrounds like mine. And I think that's really important. It, it matters for us to see the ways in which like our desire to assimilate and become what can sometimes be like an insular and technocratic elite. Like what's ugly about that? Um, and I think that this book is um, lovingly critical, but certainly critical of the ambition that drove my Indian American experience. Um, and it kind of asks like what, what it was all for. Like, was it just for power? Was it just for money? Um, Cause if that's it, I'm concerned about us. Um, yeah. I don't even know if that answered your question. But that's a rant that I like to go on sometimes. I love it. Um, and I think, you know, it's funny because the 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 scale of that question is so huge, right? Because I mean, there's, there's, you're absolutely right that there's some things that invite um, a, a a terrible PR piece. And, and I love the fact that it brings up conversations that are so important. What was the perhaps most playful um, you know, recollection, or for that matter, the fun you had in in writing this book. Did it kind of bring out any surprises of your own upbringing and experience? Well, the the pageant scene that you mentioned was very fun to write. Um, it's set at a Miss Teen India beauty pageant in like a really crappy like two star hotel in the Georgia suburbs. Um, and what I found fun about that was. Um, I got to think about like the performative elements of uh, this question, like what does it mean to be both Indian and American? And obviously that's a question I think about all the time. And yeah. this is an example of a really enriching version of that conversation. Um, but there are also sort of more inane versions of it. And, and I, <laughs> I think I had to participate in a lot of those growing up um, uh, where people were like, let's talk about being hyphenated. And like what yeah. it means to be hyphenated is to, dance a lot of Bollywood and like, that's the whole thing. Um, the other thing that I had a ton of fun with was in the second half, uh, the characters have a sort of unlikely jewelry heist set at a, a wedding expo um, that I sort of imagined in like the Santa Clara uh, convention center <laughs> right near you, <laughs> yeah. um, where I have attended tech conferences. But I went to a, uh, a wedding expo in Chicago um, with another Indian American friend. Um, and it was like bleak and hilarious. You yeah. know, there were 
people advertising, like someone advertised a non-GMO horse to ride, uh, to ride in on for the broth. I have no idea what that means. Well, if you're, if you're looking for the non-GMO horse to be on, you've found, you've, you've made many people happy. Whoever's listening to the podcast right now who needs a non-GMO horse, get to Chicago fast. Head to Naperville. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. And you know, it's, it's so funny because there's so many of those playful moments and I'm curious I, I've asked this to others before, but in sort of previewing um, your book now and 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 thinking about it, um, what did your family members, um, you know, reflect on? Did how what were their what was some of their feedback in, uh, or even just like you know feedback of of support or even you know constructive uh, you know comments to you? I was pretty scared of what they were going to say. Um, uh, my my uncle and aunt had a lot of warning because of those uh, conversations, those interviews I did with them. But I didn't tell my parents really anything about what the book was going to be about. Um, uh, and they have been really graceful. Um, I have to imagine that it was hard to read about uh, stuff that they probably recognized, like the the. The book is, as I say, I think quite affectionate, but it is critical of some of the values that I think um, like narrow Asian bubbles can produce and the sort of like single-minded striving. Um, The best I can hope for is that the book makes gestures of empathy toward like why those values exist. Um, And I really see those as like systemic problems, not like failures um, on behalf of our parents' um, generation, like they worked so hard for me to be able to do this thing I do, like the idea that I could be a writer, it's it's because of them. And I think they understand that. Um, my mom also was very happy to find out it had been optioned. Um, she she really likes Mindy Kaling, who is behind the option. So she was like, great, sold, makes sense to me now. <laughs> right. It's the, uh, you know, you've made it to the the Harvard of uh, uh, of your profession in that way. Or like, you know, that, it, and it's, you know, in some ways kind of like identifying the landing spot um, is always, you know, something that for, for many immigrants and not to, you know, generalize this, but I, I, I'm honest, I'm honestly certain that that's, very relatable. Um, you know, it's the, you know, you got an A, but why didn't you get an A plus? Um, and whatever the landing spot may or may not be that that's always the end goal. We only have a few minutes left, but let me ask you this. Um, you know, a a question that, um, I think to myself about in the medical profession is, you know, thinking about, um, entrustment and, you know, in, in, in our profession, we're certainly entrusted with a responsibility to produce good outcomes, but, you know, as a novelist and and someone who's creating art and, you know, trying to narrate an experience, but translate that into um, an, an experience for, you know, your audience and your reader. Um, I'm curious about what this did transformatively for you. And, and I'm curious how this book um, changes the way that you write in the future, or for that matter, you, you live your own life. Yeah, what a beautiful question. Um... Well, one thing that I think fiction does at its best is it can be a kind of compassion meditation, um, uh, like the practice of Tonglen um, in Tibetan Buddhism is this idea that you would uh, look at someone who you don't understand or who you have frustrations with and you fill them up with your empathy and understanding and it helps you forgive them. Um, And then you do it with yourself. 
Um, and I think that that's kind of what I had to do. I had to get over a little bit of the self-hatred that comes with being second generation in a like white school, which is how I grew up. Um, and I also had to both get out some frustrations I had with uh, people in my community and then also understand uh, why those, why we were so obsessed with striving why that could result in cruelty, how that could make social pariahs, and understand the ways in which I was complicit in that. So I think fiction writing is this act of enormous arrogance and megalomania, but it can also be humbling. Um, it can also remind you how like you, you are causing the things that you're critiquing too. Do you think that the, in, in the process of doing this, you gain more trust in yourself? I mean, I think about friends who studied anthropology in college who talked about how like the longer you study anthropology, the more you realize that you just don't know anything. Um, so it's sort of the opposite. Like, I think I, I, I don't know that I know anything. I, I, I wonder if that's just the process of aging too, is just constantly confronting your own ignorance. Um, so I don't know that I trust myself more. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I can certainly tell you that those uh, who are reading your novel are, are going to trust you quite a bit because it's beautifully written. And I'm so grateful to have had this conversation with you. Thank you so much for, for joining me today. I hope you'll come back and visit with us again. Thank you so much for this very generous conversation. You can learn more about Sanjana and her work at sanjana.com. That's S-A-N-J-E-N-A.com. And also at abhaydandekar.com. That is if I ever get my act together and update the bloody website. As always, you can check out all our episodes every Monday, Tuesday on Ruckus Avenue Radio and wherever you get your podcasts. Grateful if you're listening on radio. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And you can follow us also on Instagram and Twitter at MyGoodFriend. Till next time, I'm Abhaydandekar. Ruckus. Avenue Radio.